Well, as uh, Pastor Brian mentioned earlier, today we're continuing our series, So What? And we're taking a look at a, a few church words and we're unpacking them and kind of trying to get to uh, some of the, the deeper meaning. And a few weeks ago, I uh, mentioned in uh, one of our messages that basically the story of God and humankind has four basic stages. And so we have creation. God created the heavens and earth, created them incredibly perfect. God created humankind. And then we don't even turn two pages in the Bible and we see that humankind messed things up. And so we see the first stage is creation. The second stage is the fall or rebellion. And then we see through most of scripture, God's redemptive rescue plan. God formed a a covenant community called the nation of Israel. And then out of the nation of Israel came Jesus, the perfect Israelite who died for the sins of of the world. That's God's rescue mission so that we can be at one with God, so that we can be reconciled with one another. And then that fourth stage is renewal, that God is constantly working in the world. God is constantly working in our lives to put that which is wrong right, that God is making all things new. When we read the Gospels and we hear Jesus describe, for example, the life and the kingdom of God, we read about this right pudding, so to speak, forgiveness of sins, restoring relationships between one another, giving all people respect and dignity, lifting up the poor and the downtrodden, standing up to hatred with love, standing up to evil with goodness. God is on this grand renewal project, and in the fullness of God's time, in a time known but to God, he will call all of history to a focal point, and his work of renewal and redemption will give way to a new heaven and a new earth. And here's the really awesome part. The way God designed his plan to work is that we have a massive role to play in the story. Not only are we the objects of God's relentless, rescuing, redemptive love through Christ on the cross, But then God invites us, no, he calls us to step deeply into the story and to join him in this work of renewal. As a matter of fact, for those of us who call Christ our Lord, this stepping into the story is not an option. It's actually even not a command. It runs deeper than that. It is actually evidence It is evidence that you are a Christian. This work of renewal has several key tasks. And as Brian mentioned earlier, one is our church word for today, and that is the word justice. In addition to the powerful words that Brian read earlier from our text, we also hear the theme of justice just thundering down the corridors of history through the prophets Amos and Micah. Amos wrote, let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Micah 6.8, in describing what religion is supposed to be like, he, God, has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So this word justice is the word we're going to unpack for a while today. So let me invite you to take out your teaching notes if you find taking notes helpful. And here's what I want to do. I want us to get a working definition of justice out on the table. I want us to look at the shape of justice and then the work of justice. 
Justice is another one of those interesting biblical words that we tend to grab just a, a little bit of the definition. Most people have an idea of what it means, but they often just grab just a little bit of it. It's incomplete. Let, let me give you an example. In, in a little bit, we're going to have barbecue. And I don't know, in, in, in a, a church like this, in this area, people from all over the country. And so some of you grew up in areas where you invited somebody over for a barbecue. And this meant you simply fired up the grill. You can go ahead and put that first picture of the grill up there. And then all you, not all, as in limited, but you put like hot dogs and hamburgers and chicken. And you said, come over for a barbecue. Anybody grow up with this vernacular? Yeah, of course you did. However, in the South, where I grew up, if you invited somebody over for, so that's a cookout in the South. If you invited somebody over for a barbecue, it means that you went and you procured an animal, and then you roasted that animal for six to eight hours, a long, long time. And then if you grew up in, in North Carolina, you then soaked that animal, a pig, in just incredibly well-prepared vinegar sauce, you made hush puppies and had sweet tea, and then you said, we are in the southern part of heaven. And you knew it. That is a barbecue in the south. And so one, a cookout, has a slightly incomplete meaning of the word barbecue. And then, of course, then there's the, the southern version of barbecue that just feels a little more complete. Now, if kids in the room don't say, pastor said, justice is like barbecue, but it's not. But you see what I'm saying? There's more to the meaning. Now, often, when people grab the meaning of justice, the incomplete meaning, and, and typically it is from people who grew up privileged in some way, they mean justice on merely legal terms. Making sure that someone that has done something wrong is held accountable. Or making sure that people are treated fairly. If we lined four, five four-year-olds up at lunch today, and we only gave two of them dessert, and we left three of them out and didn't give them dessert, they may not use the term justice, but they will literally cry for justice and ask for their dessert. That's making things right. That's treating everybody just to give all five dessert. Or we want our legal system to take care of us if we've been wronged by someone. We want justice. We want justice to be served. Nothing wrong with this definition or this part of the definition, but it's only part. And if you said that's what justice means in the Bible, you would not have the fullest meaning. It would not be complete. Biblical justice has a fuller meaning. You could say it has a heart. Christianity Day, for example, defines it as biblical justice involves making individuals, communities, and the cosmos, all creation, whole by upholding both goodness and impartiality. The word for justice in both the Old Testament and New Testament is almost synonymous with righteousness, and you'll see it's often paired with the word mercy, and essentially it includes looking out for the most vulnerable in our communities. Tim Keller wrote in the book Generous Justice, we engage in justice when we give all human beings their due as creations of God. Justice includes not only the righting of wrongs, 
but generosity and social concern, especially toward the poor and the vulnerable. From God's point of view, these two definitions, accountability and merciful compassion toward the vulnerable, they actually start to merge. So, for example, God thinks it is wrong that God has provided more than enough food for everybody on planet Earth to have enough food, but yet there are some people who have far more calories than they could ever use or need, and then while others don't have nearly enough to live. Or God thinks it is wrong when we live in such a way that we have almost destroyed this good and gracious planet that God has given us and that we don't tend to the environment. Tending to the environment is not woke. It's about being Christian. It's about obeying the first call that God gave humankind to have care and to take care of his creation. And so we see here that the biblical definition of justice is most full when it includes essentially making things right, looking out for the most vulnerable in our communities. Let's take a look at the shape of justice. If you look at our text, Isaiah opens with a stunning description, a stunning description of the people of God, the nation of Israel. At first, they seem like people who just are just tight with God. The prophet says, daily they seek God out. They're eager to know the ways of God. They engage in spiritual practices like fasting. They ask God for just decisions and seem eager for God to be close. Now, if you're checking off a list of what it means to be a good Christian, some would probably say, hey, that's a pretty good list. Seeking God, eager to learn about God's ways, spiritual disciplines, a desire to be close to God. I mean, you could call that a list of being uh, minding your, your vertical direction of our spirituality. Put that vertical pick up there, Mike. See, this is kind of minding that direction of all these things that are, are trying to, to, to live faithfully to God up. But wait. Isaiah begins the entire text with these words from the Lord. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sin. So here they are doing all this fasting stuff and they they think they want God to be pleased and all of this and yet he opens the entire chapter by saying these people are wrong. They're evil. What's going on? Well, one, they were engaging in the ways of God in such a way to get God's favor as a way to manipulate God for God to bless them. So it's kind of like, you know, God, if I pray every day, if I read a verse of the Bible, if I give my money, if I go to church all the time, then God, I expect you to bless me and I expect everything to go just how I want it to go in my life. As one writer said, this is the idea of wanting the things of God, but not wanting God. Wanting the things of God, the blessings of God, but not necessarily wanting the fullness of God. But then, as we see over and over in Isaiah 58, They were neglecting the most vulnerable. They were exploiting their workers. They were not engaged in true biblical justice. They were not living horizontally. They were not fulfilling their call by God, their mandate by God, their command by God, 
to look out for the most vulnerable. We are called to live both vertically and horizontally. We could simply call this living a cross-shaped life, just like our Lord did. Our Lord came to die for the sins of the world. Our Lord came and satisfied our need, our need to be right, to be just with God. He took on our death so that we wouldn't have to. He fulfilled that part of God's justice, and our Lord came, and he reached out to the people on the margins. When he opened his inaugural sermon, he said, I have come to preach good news to the poor. I have come to to liberate the oppressed. Here's the kicker. The Bible says over and over and over, if we want to be in a right relationship with God, we will look after the most vulnerable. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 25. I opened our service with it. It was our opening scripture reading. He said, those who have looked after the poor, the stranger, the hungry, and so on, they've looked after me. They've taken care of me, and they're good to go. They're going to be okay through the judgment. Those who did not, depart from me. Depart from me. Does this mean we work our way into a relationship with God? No. We can't buy our way into a saving relationship with God. We can't earn it. But what it does mean, it's evidence. It's evidence of a transformed heart. It's evidence that you have bowed your heart to Jesus Christ and you've allowed his love and his mercy and his compassion to flood and to fill your heart. And therefore, you want to do what he wants you to do, and that is to work for justice and to bring mercy and compassion and love wherever you go. So justice shapes our lives. It means that we live vertically in pursuit of God, and we live horizontally in pursuit of redemptive, just relationships with the most vulnerable. So that's the so what. The say what. I always get that mixed up. That's the say what. Now, how about the so what? How do we work for justice? I want to suggest three actions we can embrace. One is embrace your common identity. The Bible says that we are all, every single one of us, made in the image of God. This means that we are to treat everyone with the same dignity and respect that we would want to be treated. And it means that we are to treat all people with this type of dignity. To ripe it up, to wrap it up in a nice package, it means that we will pursue racial and social equity. We want equity for all. Look for a moment at verse 7. Isaiah, speaking for the Lord, says that you are to provide shelter for the poor wanderer. What does that mean, the poor wanderer? Does that mean somebody whose GPS went off while they were you know, wandering around? No. It refers to the immigrant, the stranger, the refugee. Here it says to provide shelter and food and clothing. Leviticus 24:22 says, "You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native born. I am the Lord your God." This means equal treatment. Back in our text, the Lord says, "Do not turn away from your own flesh and blood." You see, 
we are all the same in God's eyes. We're all equal in God's eyes. So when we see someone from a different racial, ethnic background than us, when we see someone here, maybe in our home country, who's not from our home country, we are to see them as our own flesh and blood. God is not looking at boundaries and borders. This means that if someone from another state sends a busload of recent immigrants and drops them off at our front door, then we go out and we make sure that they can find housing and food and clothes. That's what I didn't say it. God did. Now, please know, I know that every nation needs immigration procedures and laws. I know that. And I know that we have a serious immigration challenge in this country that needs to be addressed. I know that. But what we're talking about here is our Christian response to the person in need standing in front of us, our Christian response as a community of faith in need in this city. We are responsible to God for how we respond to the person in need that has been put right in front of us. We'll let the government work on the policies and the politics of it all. But as God's people, we're called to step forward and to meet those needs. This also means working really, really hard to stand against systemic racism wherever we see it. We have systems of laws and education and commerce that has been tilted in favor of white males and white people for a really long time and tilted against people of color. This may make some of you uncomfortable, but we have. Let me just give you a few well-known examples. How many of you have fathers or grandfathers that fought in World War II? How many of them went up to college on the GI Bill or received a, a veteran-backed loan? The GI Bill was a wonderful, wonderful program. The GI Bill helped so many of the greatest generation to climb the social ladder and make a good living for themselves and their families so that their families could advance. Did you know that even though there was not specific language that excluded African-American soldiers from using GI benefits, Southern politicians lobbied to have each state administer the benefits, including housing loans, and these Southern states used tactics that made it impossible for the widespread use of the GI Bill. One scholar wrote, there has been no greater instrument for widening an already huge racial gap in post-war America than the GI Bill. That's systemic racism. That's just one example. We could take redlining laws in the, in the lending industry and in the business world as another one. If you want to read more and more and more about this, there's a book called Color of Law. As a matter of fact, it's on my table. It's, 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 it's disturbing, but it's eye-opening. These are just a few examples. As Christians, we are called to treat everyone equally and work for social and racial equity. And this is one of the ways we work for justice. Let me suggest a second way. We embrace an uncommon care and concern for the vulnerable. Biblical scholars, and if, if you're a student of the Bible, you'll hear this over and over, refer to the quartet 
of the vulnerable. The quartet of the vulnerable in the Bible. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Widows were poor women often not able to provide for themselves. Orphans were at the mercy of other families to take them in. Immigrants, we've talked about, the poor meant those who were in economic and social distress as outcasts. Now here's the deal. People often confuse equality and equity. And there's a big difference. People often confuse equality and equity. Equality means that everyone gets the same. Right? Equity means everyone gets what they need to achieve equal outcomes. Equality means everybody gets the same. Equity means everybody gets what they need to achieve an equal outcome. So you see there, it's a classic picture, right? Equality is everybody gets the same box to stand on to look over the fence. Equity means that the tallest guy doesn't need that much of a box. Bottom line, you don't do for others what you do for the vulnerable because they don't need it. Those who have all they need don't need more. But those who are the most vulnerable need more help. And the Bible talks over and over and over about having an uncommon, extra generous concern for the vulnerable and the most poor. Third, embrace radical generosity. Just read a few verses. Listen to all these generous words. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose? That's a very generous word. Loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To share your food with the hungry. To provide for the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, clothe them. Not turn away from your own flesh and blood. On and on and on. And then he says, you know, your light, your light will rise in the darkness. Your night will become like the noonday. Didn't Jesus say something about my people will be salt and light? Didn't he say something like my people will be a city that's shining on a hill? Part of the way that makes that light shine is working for justice for all. Spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Well, how can we embrace a mindset of radical generosity? Two ways we'll wrap it up, I promise. One, realize there's a common owner. When King David was organizing the people to give support for the building of the temple, he prayed over the people, brought all these gifts, all of this this. Uh, resources, the resources to build the temple. And in his prayer, he said, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have only given what comes from your hand. If you have groceries in the fridge, you do know they're God's groceries, right? If you have a car to drive and clothes to wear to work, you know that's God's car for you to borrow for a while and God's clothes. If you have a home, you do know that's God's home. Right. He's just kind of giving it to you as a, we call that in another church word, steward, manager. God has given you your home, your car, your food, your resources, your retirement for you to manage. And so the question is, are you going to manage it on behalf of yourself 
Are you going to manage it on behalf of the call of justice in the Bible? That's really the question. Right? To live radically means we understand that all we have is His. So we embrace a common owner, and then we realize the common need. In this series, we've talked over and over about how we all have a need that we cannot meet on our own. And this need is for salvation. I've said over and over, we can't work for it, we can't earn it, we can't buy it. There's nothing we can do. We just open our hands and receive it from our Lord. That's what we can do. When you realize that your greatest need is simply given to you by our Lord and that you can't do anything except open your hands and receive it, you realize that you're as needy as anybody you've ever laid eyes on. And when you realize your common need, when you take that to the fullness of who you are, and you realize, thank you, God, thank you for the mercy that you've had for me, the compassionate love and grace you bestowed on me, then you want to, as the end of Isaiah says, take delight. You take delight in the ways of God. You don't see this as an onerous burden. You take delight in meeting the needs of others and showing mercy. Just before I went into the fifth grade, I mean, just weeks before, my, my family moved and we changed school district. And one of my first friends in uh, this uh, school was uh, a, a fifth, another fifth grader named Kevin Pulliam. And uh, Kevin was a, an African-American. And I absolutely loved and just, was enthralled with uh, getting to know him and trying to get to know his family. And, um, and part of this, is, and I've shared with you before, part of my journey is growing up in the South and in the time I did, my first three grades of school, I went to segregated schools and then uh, went to desegregated schools after that. And so I was just, I, I, I knew, I, I, was, I was smart enough or lucky enough or whatever to know this is, a, this is good. This is a blessing. Thank you, Right. And I used to sit with Kevin almost every day at lunch. And Kevin and I w went to the same schools all the way until we graduated from high school. I used to sit with Kevin every day at lunch. And I noticed Kevin ate a little bit differently than I did. He ate slowly. I tended to eat fast. I ate just everything, like a chaos, like the uh, Tasmanian devil, you know, in the cartoons. And he ate one thing at a time. Have you ever, anybody know somebody eats one, there's, there's, I've known people since they eat one thing at a time. And so I would be finished with my lunch, and I'd say, hey, Kevin, are you going to eat your roll? It was, school, school lunches were good back then. Yeast rolls were unbelievable. Or, Kevin, are you going to eat your peanut butter bar? Peanut butter bars were all out, off the charts. They were so good. I still taste it. He said to me the same thing every single time. Every single time. It never failed. He said, no, <laughs> but you can have half. No, but you can have half. Later on, as we got older, I realized, and, and I actually went to Kevin, I realized that Kevin, while my family didn't grow up with a lot of extras, Kevin's family didn't grow up with even, he grew up with even fewer extras. And to this day, I just simply remember Kevin saying, no, but you can have half. 
You can have half. Radical generosity. I want to close by talking a little bit about the common good, the project we have going on here. Working for justice is the vision behind the common good. I'm so proud of this congregation when I tell my colleagues about you. You have practically, you've practiced generosity, and you have practically released almost half of our building to be focused on nonprofits reaching the most vulnerable in our community so that we can elevate the effectiveness of nonprofits and be able to have creative collaboration among them. Since we own our building, we're able to charge nonprofits less rent so that more of their money can go to working for justice in our community and beyond. We want to elevate these nonprofits in their work. Is it going to cause us to sacrifice some of our comforts as a congregation? Yes, because justice demands it. Is it going to cause us to streamline and slim down on some of the things we own as a congregation and let them go if we don't need them? Yes, because justice demands it. Are we going to need to dig deeper and raise more funds to make sure it's sustainable if we need to? Yes, because justice demands it. If the Lord made us choose between renovating this room that we're sitting in right now, and if you're a guest, we want to freshen up this room, or making sure the common ground got off the common good got off the ground, would we choose the common good? Yes, because justice demands it. God always calls us to double-check our comfort zones in the face of justice. Or, we can simply adopt the slogan. You can have half. And actually more. If you need it. Let's be a people who live faithfully toward God. And faithfully in relationship with others. Let's live out this call of Isaiah to spend ourselves for the sake of the most vulnerable. To do justice. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with God. Amen.